Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking with my new friend, Michael Bilica, about uh, Ibram X. Kendi's uh, book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, so maybe just before we get going, uh, you could sort of introduce yourself to our uh, to our listeners. We have uh, people from basically all over the English speaking world, from New Zealand to the UK, you know, all over the place. So uh, shoot. All right. So I'll start with where I am now. I'm a I'm a high school um, math and science teacher. I teach right now chemistry and physics in Sutton, Massachusetts, which is in the vicinity of Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, we live in Northeast Connecticut. Um, my wife and I have been married since 1998, a long time. We have two grown uh, sons that are both going off to college now. So uh, that's the stage in my life that I'm in. Um, and so I'm we're, we're pretty much, we're in a very similar thing. We got married in right. 2000 and we have two boys and they're both also in college. <laughs> they're 18 yeah. and 19 years old. Yeah, it's interesting. I got 20 and 18. 20 and 18. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, So, you know, this is, I want to sort of start off our discussion of Kendi's book by actually uh, reading a passage from a totally different book, because I, I find this very, very interesting that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people that I know who love uh, this, you know, this philosopher, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, they, they absolutely love him. Uh, and they hate they hate Kendi, uh, or they think they hate Kendi, although they haven't really read him. But um, you know, and they they have this like. But what struck me uh, as I got to the the end of the book is that actually Ibram X Kendi is making an argument that's very similar to the mm-hmm. argument that Nassim Nicholas Taleb makes in his uh, famous bestseller, uh, The Black Swans. the The passage is uh, it's it, <laughs> Taleb has a very funny style and he mm-hmm. he sort of goes off into kind of almost fictional dialogue like a platonic dialogues at times but in the black mm-hmm. swan there's this one passage where he contrasts two ways of seeing the world uh, he says i know that it is rare for fat tony and dr john these are two fictional characters he's created mm-hmm. fat tony is a kind of a, like a sort of a tony soprano type very streetwise uh, brooklyn character and Dr. John is this PhD who's like a very 
straight arrow kind of investment banker type, you know. Um, so he says, I know that it is rare for Fat Tony and Dr. John to breathe the same air, let alone find themselves at the same bar. So consider this a pure thought exercise. I will ask each of them a question and compare their answers. Taleb, that is me. Assume that a coin is fair, that is, has an equal probability of coming up heads or tails when flipped. I flip it 99 times and get heads each time. What are the odds of my getting tails on my next throw? Dr. John, ha, trivial question. One half, of course, since you are assuming 50% odds for each and independence between draws. Taleb, what do you say, Tony? Fat Tony. I'd say no more than 1%, of course, Taleb. Why so? I gave you the initial assumption of a fair coin, meaning that it was 50% either way. Fat Tony, you are either full of crap or a pure sucker to buy that 50% business. The coin gotta be loaded. It can't be a fair game. Translation, it is far more likely that your assumptions about the fairness are wrong than the coin delivering 99 heads in 99 throws, Taleb. But Dr. John said 50%. Fat Tony whispering in my ear, I know these guys with the nerd examples from the bank days. They think way too slow and they are too commoditized. You can take them for a ride. <laughs> so it seems to me that the yeah. one of the things that people find most objectionable to Kendi's argument is uh, what I would call his radically consequentialist view of, mm -hmm. of racism. So he basically says, uh, it doesn't matter what, what you think about the fairness of the system. It doesn't matter you know, what people's intentions are and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What matters is the outcome. And so if a, if a system um, systematically produces unequal outcomes for, for men, and women uh, for for various racial groups, for various ethnic groups, linguistic groups, uh, people of different sexual orientations. Um, if it produces unequal outcomes, then it is uh, obviously, uh, to quote Fat Tony, the coin's got to be, the game's got to be rigged. You know, it can't be a fair game, right? So mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that? Well, as somebody with biochemistry training, I can tell you that I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry some, and, and there's plenty of great chalkboard medications that have gone to clinical trials, and there is literally no effect it has on any of the animal studies. We do the process, we do the clinical trial, and early on in the trial, we start seeing fatalities, unexpected phenomena. We don't go back to our chalkboard and say, we need to continue because it was clean. We considered all the evidence. It was totally a safe product. That those, those people are an exception. What we look at is we look at the outcomes throughout the trial, and we don't continue a trial where the outcomes are disproportionately bad. We don't, in statistics, in, in when we do analysis of the clinical study, we look at outcomes. We don't look at the initial, um, the initial idea once we've been approved by the institutional review board. So once we're past that initial stage, what our, what our thoughts were at the beginning are gone. Now it's all about outcomes. And I think government policy is like that. I think we make well-intentioned 
policies, like for public housing in New York and Chicago, where, where I, I went to high school in the Chicago area, there was a lot of public housing that was well-intentioned. That we're getting efficient, low-income housing for lots of people in the low-income neighborhoods. And it ended up backfiring badly. It ended up increasing crime. It ended up causing more poverty. Um, you know, so and, and restricting people from being able to access housing if they've had a felony before, you couple that with that's fair. And then you couple that with it's fair to pursue drug criminals. And you put those two things together. Now you get a lot of people unable to access the public housing, which is also already bad. So that creates a whole underclass. And that none of that, you would argue, was intended. Yeah. But the outcome does result in racial inequities, racial disparities, schools like where I taught in Boston that were entirely black students. And just the most segregated city I've ever lived in is Boston. And then just five blocks away, a school with entirely white students. That was all produced by well-meaning intellectuals, even liberal progressive intellectuals. We need to have schools that are built for the communities that they serve. So let's put a few black teachers that speak Cape Verdean or put a few black teachers that speak Haitian, make sure students from those communities go there. You create a system where one school is scoring way higher than the other. They've got all the better teachers and resources and another one where they don't have enough calculators for every student. They don't have enough textbooks. You know, it, it's unintended. And, you know, for Kendi, who grew up in New York, I mean, he was on the front lines of some of those unintended consequences. His parents had to spend a lot of money to get him out of the government policy schools into private policy schools that were nonetheless also racist. Mm-hmm. So, not intentionally. I don't, I've never met a priest. I'm Catholic. I've never met a priest who's intentionally racist, but I've been on a lot of NGO trips in Haiti and all of the paid staff are white. So yeah. I, you know, it's it's remarkable to me, despite the fact that in Boston, there's a huge Haitian community of doctors, lawyers, intelligentsia. You know what I mean? So we, I see it every single day, examples of unintended racist outcomes. So how do we how do we how do we deal with that? Of course, we don't mean to be racist. We're raised to be colorblind and to be non-racist and to be post-racial. How do we yeah, get there? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on on you know where where you were raised. Because I mean, I definitely was not raised to be colorblind at all. Uh, I my uh, my mother raised. You know, I was raised in a single parent household, and actually in in public housing, we were we were quite um, quite poor. And for a couple of years, we were actually on on welfare and stuff like that, and we were in public housing. But I. Yeah, I mean, my mother was always like extremely accepting and and loving towards towards everybody. She didn't seem to have, uh, I don't know, she didn't seem to have any kind of prejudices that I could detect. But she definitely was not uh, colorblind. I mean, she, uh, she sort of saw, um, as far as I could tell, growing up, it seemed to me like she saw. Uh, race, ethnicity, uh, language, religion, um, sexuality, all these things as being part of like 
who somebody is. And so, of course, you would want to, like, acknowledge and understand those different flavors and tastes, you know, mm. like, to understand, like, you know, who those people were. I mean, I, I don't think uh, this ever, this didn't translate in, into any kind of, like, hierarchy of, like, but... But definitely I, I was not raised when I heard the I heard the colorblind thing for the first time, I think, on American television from George uh, yeah. Herbert Walker Bush. You know, I, he was the first that oh. I heard. And I remember thinking it was it was a strange. Like, how can you like unsee something like that? Like you. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I guess, you know, I guess it it's well intentioned, you know, but. Absolutely. It's, it's this idea that if everybody is treated the same, then we don't need to worry about, you know, disparate treatment because everybody's treated the same, right? So if on an individual level, we treat our neighbors the same way as we treat ourselves, we follow the biblical, you know, teachings, you know, which was very popular in the 80s when this concept was first sort of proposed. Um, but you know, what, what, en- what ends up happening is people start to feel that racism is something that is not only a personal failing, but it's something in the past as well. It's people in, wood, in white, white ropes. It's people with, you know, the pointy hoods. Yeah. Not us. So that, that's what I think that, that that colorblind thing is. You may not state it in literal terms, but when we're asked to treat everybody the same and it'll make the world a better place, then what we do is we take this external problem that is the whole community needs to come together on and we make it a personal problem. And Mm -hmm. then we can then deflect and say, well, boy, those people in the ghetto, those people are really suffering from personal poor decision-making skills, bad investment decisions, bad education decisions, you know, getting involved in drug use, you know, that's all their personal judgment error. So we don't think about, well, why is it that there's those numbers like that? What, what are the statistics? We don't even ask because we're only talking about, instead of a population approach, we're talking about, it's just here, right here, that we, between my shoulders, you know, right here. That's where the problem is. And yeah. uh, we I, not. I, I'm not as like... I know Kendi, for obvious reasons, is super, super critical of the culture of poverty argument. Um, and I understand. But having actually grown up in a, in a very poor neighborhood here in Montreal, it's doing much better now. But when I was a kid, the unemployment rate in my neighborhood was one third, like one third of able, able-bodied adults could not find any work and had not been able to find work for years. Right. And, uh, you know, so it was, um, so I definitely, I've, I've experienced firsthand. So nobody's going to kind of gaslight me and say that it doesn't, I've seen a culture of poverty. I've seen uh, all the things that conservatives talk about uh, from the, uh, you know, really no faith in the future, you know, spending all your money on, on lottery tickets and booze and cigarettes and on, um, you know, and, and making all these like bad choices and had teen pregnancy and all those things. However, this is the thing that bugs me about the people who, you know, really run with the whole culture of poverty argument. I believe that like poverty can create a culture of poverty, but it can change so rapidly. Yes. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Like mm-hmm. when the economy picked up, 
in Montreal and, and the economy picked up and suddenly there was jobs. Most of these people that were, I mean, some of them, yeah, were stuck in kind of these very dysfunctional uh, behavior patterns and were, were stuck there for sure. But the vast majority of people just went off and became like productive members of society. And they just like, they walked away. And I think, you know, the example I always give my students, because I think this is just kind of a stunning, stunning fact, is if you look at uh, what happened when they repealed prohibition in the United States. So when, obviously, when, and this is, has a lot to say about the war on drugs and mass incarceration, but when they made, um, alcohol illegal, it created a massive, massive black market for alcohol, of course, which fueled um, the biggest crime wave in American history happened during mm-hmm. Prohibition, like unbelievable. Right. And at the height of Prohibition, there were 500 um, full-time uh, hitmen in New York City Full-time, that was their job. I mm-hmm. kill people, you know, like, like John Travolta yeah. and Samuel L. Jackson and Pulp Fiction. Like, mm-hmm. I kill, that's my job. 500. Now, when, when Prohibition uh, was repealed, suddenly uh, it just, it was Overnight. such a horrible blow to organized crime. They lost, you know, like massive amount of their revenue stream. Mm-hmm. And so like any corporation or business that, you know, no, they had to have layoffs. They had to fire people. And so the, the vast majority, and there was this study that I read in grad school where somebody who went and actually like into, they're all like old men at this point, went and interviewed these old like hitmen, And they asked them like, so what did you do? Like when you, there was no work for that. Like, well, I went and got my plumbing degree, became a plumber. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I started yeah. it. I opened a bodega. They just became normal people in society. Yeah. And no more of the murders. <laughs> like this is, this is just fascinating to me. You do so, what you have to do to take yeah, care of you and, and yours. And the thing is, is like this is the crazy thing about the culture of poverty argument. It's it's true, but I think what it fails to appreciate is uh, how rapidly, how mm-hmm. flexible human cultures are. Right. So people can people can individually and and groups. Humans, and, and actually this is not just us, like social animals in general, whether it be various kinds of primates, monkeys, dolphins, they're really good at changing their group structure and their culture to adapt to changing circumstances. I mean, the classic example that I, I always use in class, because it's just it's a great one, is uh, if you there's these islands in Indonesia and Malaysia, and they have these particular kinds of monkeys, big monkeys. And they, some of the islands have been kind of clear cut or logged. And so they don't have like a lot of trees, it's sparse cover. And so it's very easy for these giant eagles that eat monkeys to get the monkeys, right? And then other islands are heavily, heavily forested with a canopy of jungle. And it's, you know, it's very tight. And so the monkeys don't have to worry because the eagles can't get in to get them, mm-hmm. get at them. And what's amazing is that the monkeys exactly genetically identical have mm-hmm. totally different social structures on yeah. the different islands. So on the islands that are sparsely treed, uh, forested, they are really worried about predators. And so they live in larger groups, very large groups 
where there's always lots of people on, on lookout, you know, looking to see if there's like an eagle coming. And they, the, in terms of the, the social structure on those islands, there is much more kind of uh, coherence and order within the group. They uh, punish people who uh, don't pull their weight, who are sort of individualistic. Uh, they repress conflict within the group heavily. If two monkeys start fighting, they will beat both of them up because they can't afford to have this bullshit because we've got these eagles trying to eat us all the time. As soon as they get onto the islands, um, and, and you can actually, like, if, if one island is sparsely and the trees grow up, the culture changes completely for the monkeys. If that island is, is clear-cut and logged pretty heavily, the monkeys on that island will change their social structure. And when, the, when it's heavily forested, the monkeys uh, live in smaller groups because they no longer need this, you know, big, big society. And they tend to allow more uh, sort of individuality and more conflict because they don't have to be, they don't have an existential threat all the time. So I think like if we think about, you know, what are called like ghettos and, and poor neighborhoods and the pathologies that we find there as being uh, sort of adaptations to a particular kind of environment, if you change the environment, you can, you're not going to change everybody. Some people are stuck in, you know, like we, we know people, I'm sure you know people, I have friends who are stuck at 25, even though they're in their 40s and 50s. Just, there's like yeah. They got into a rut at some point and they're just, so some people will stick with the culture of poverty, but most uh, will will change if, if circumstances change. I mean, do you find that convincing or? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm from, like I said, Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, we lived in Morgantown for many years when my dad was a graduate student. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, we weren't financially able to support ourselves. Uh, we were on government assistance for years. Uh, my father left us alone to go train in Chicago to, to get a trade so we could come out and join him. It was like nine months. And we were living in a trailer park. My mother was raped. Um, we were robbed. Um, there was all kinds of crime. Oh my God, that's horrible. Um, it, was, it was bad. Like I couldn't walk someplace without somebody shaking me down. And these were white people. <laughs> these, were, mm -hmm. these were hillbillies. And like you said, the unemployment rate was really high. The coal mines were even back then in the, in the early 80s, they were already starting to lose steam and people were struggling and they were desperate. And there were a lot of single men that came there to find work and couldn't find work. And my mother, three children was beautiful woman just alone with no man i mean i when i taught in the inner city boston i saw a lot of parallels you know i saw a lot of kids being raised by single mothers there was rape there was prostitution um it's just you know the race changed you know there was a lot of different diverse people but i saw the the, the issues people were dealing with were very similar except that there was also a heavy police presence that was cracking down on everybody. My ninth, my ninth grade freshman algebra class, over 50% of my students were already on probation. They were already in the criminal justice system, most of whom were put there by a judge having never committed or even been accused of a crime. Just somebody told the mother, hey, you're working two jobs. You want us to keep an eye on your kid for you? Put him in the system. Unintended, right? It's mm -hmm. not racist. We're trying to help the community. But this over-policing resulted in lots of incarceration at the end of the day. And again, lots of desperation. Were there crimes committed? 
absolutely there were crimes committed. If you fund a community, you gentrify it, you kick people out, you bring in white people, suddenly people think, oh, look, it's, it's the black people that were the problem. When in fact, if we just plant, you know, trees, put in parks, you know, increase the infrastructure, maybe increase home ownership among the community you're trying to help, you probably won't see a problem. I work, I work as a consultant for a housing institute where they were trying to take homeless people and instead of making them work in complete drug treatment systems first, they just gave them housing. So they were giving all these people in the Hartford area housing because people were living in the emergency room because that was the only place they could find a place to sleep for the night. So we give them housing and what happened? The unemployment rate dropped. People were able to get care for their drug addiction. They were able to hold down jobs. So resources, and it's been shown time and time again that you just give cash payouts to people in poor parts of the world. You've probably seen these studies and people don't just blow it on footwear. They actually invest it into their own small businesses. There's microfinancing in Haiti where people are giving loans of 50 bucks to people, very low interest loans, and they're using it to buy a sewing machine and they're improving their station. They're building a house. Um, I mean, if you just invested in poor people the way that the New Deal invested in white people, if we invested in people today, um, I think you'd find a similar effect. As you're saying, you know, your, your example in the animal kingdom, um, it's actually already been shown through study after study in the, in the human communities. Yeah, I, this is, you, you actually touched on probably one of the, the most interesting issues, I think, that the, that the book raises, which is there's been this, there's been this constant refrain on the sort of progressive left ever. I mean, I, I think I've been hearing this since I was like a kid, like my mom with her friends sitting around at the kitchen table talking about politics and stuff. I've been hearing this and I heard it all through undergrad, all through my 20s and stuff. It's the these comparisons, these hand-wringing comparisons to Sweden and Norway and Finland and these, these Northern uh, European countries that have a very generous welfare state and have very kind of compassionate, reasonable law enforcement, and they don't, uh, you know, they really try and uh, rehabilitate people and have reasonable attitudes towards, you know, drugs and and things like that. And there's always the kind of comparison, why can't we be more like them, right? And they would say, you know, that the United States was just this basket case of a first world country that has like a lot of poverty and why can't they have a better and then you know Canadians would say okay well we're better than the states but compared to every other first world country we suck you know so that we're basically uh I think it was uh, David Fenaria this guy in my neighborhood real character uh, old kind of communist guy he used to say that uh, that the relationship between Canada and the states was was sort of like uh like a, a junkie or a drunk who, who always keeps somebody around who's more screwed up than they are. So they can be like, Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. I do Coke on the weekends, but he does it during the week. You know, like, oh, he's got a problem. I'm fine. You know, like, <laughs> so Canadians like would sort of look at the States and go, Oh, I'm better than them. You know, but uh, they would say, well, if you compare us to, to a place like Sweden or Finland, then um, you know, they, they're doing way, way better. Now what a lot of social scientists have found, and this is, this really messes with my head. I don't know how to really square this, but 
they found that the more diversity that mm-hmm. you have, and this is all over the world in like radically different countries, mm-hmm. cultures, the more diverse a place is, the less support there is for uh, mm-hmm. a compassionate legal system, criminal justice system, the less support there is for a generous welfare state, um, all of these things, right? That this is, that there, and so some people have concluded, I don't, I think this is uh, very much a premature conclusion, but some have concluded that because of this, progressives need to choose between uh, diversity and um, social justice, you know, social welfare policy that you have that if you turn this dial up, it turns this dial down, right? And that every time that you, so you have to sort of, if you want to balance them, you know, fine, do that, but you you can't have your your cake and eat it too. That, um, so, I mean, and so they, they said that this is a false comparison to places like Sweden, because these are incredibly homogeneous societies where, now, almost everybody is white, yeah. almost everybody is Protestant, almost everybody is True. Lutheran, almost everybody True. speaks the same language, they have the same That's culture. Um, and so when you feel a real sort of uh, like, like there's a we, right, that there's a, uh, we say in French, like a, a new, you know, like a, an us, yeah. right, then people are more willing to um, pay more taxes and to be more towards people that they identify with. Mm-hmm. So, okay, before we go, what do, what do you think about that? That, that? Well, that's that old tribal hypothesis, right? Um, but I mean, we can't make that kind of extension. That's a, it's a correlation for sure. Um, we can't run experiments here on planet earth where we can create a diverse Sweden and create a homogeneous Sweden and see what happens. Just let them go. Um, mm. But the, the, that argument also, completely discounts any other cause besides tribalism because it could just be ethnic disparity it could be racism and i think you're going to find that in communities where everybody is of the same race they're disparately ethnically inclined there's yoruba and Igbo. there's you know even the israelis and palestinians there are Lots of ways that we differentiate ourselves from each other. But I think when you're talking about diversity, I think you're talking about skin tone, about melanin, right? So that, um, that's could what be. a lot of these it studies. Could be. It, could, about, right? it could also be people who are the same, uh, the same skin tone, but like they're, I don't know, one person's Syrian and one person's German, right? And they, they look exactly the same. They both have green eyes and white skin, but one of them is, mm-hmm. like, uh, let's say, Sunni Muslim and the other one is a lapsed Lutheran or something, right? So, and they would see each other as being uh, radically different. And, you know, the, like, and it, it is this, this really difficult question, I think, because, yes. you know, if one of the things that Kendi never really addresses, and I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can fault him for that, but he seems to view society and the economy specifically as uh, kind of like a big pie and that there's some entity like whether it's the government that's making policies or or there's some entity that is divvying out these pieces of the pie and is doing so 
in a very inequitable fashion. Now, I think there are instances where that is obviously what's happening. I, you know, obviously there are examples, but it seems to me that if you believe that that's how an economy works, then you fundamentally misunderstand uh, economics. Like you, you fundamentally dis- misunderstand like how wealth is created and how um, in our society, because it's not as if like there's this centralized, I mean, we've tried that a couple of times in the past and it was a real disaster, like a centralized state that sort of soaks up all the resources and then you know, divvies them out, like like a you know a parent divvying out like dinner, like at a Sunday dinner or something like that around the table. Um, that's just not how wealth is created. I mean, it is true that you know in places, especially in places like like Canada, we pay a lot of taxes here. So yes, the government does take a bunch of taxes and mm-hmm. then use those taxes to. Um, obviously to take care of common things, roads, hospitals, law enforcement, mm-hmm. parks, schools, everything, hospitals. Right. Um, but they also do use a bunch of that money for um, redistribution, right, to different mm-hmm. groups and stuff like that. So Kendi's right um, insofar that there is some of that, you know, apportioning out. And so governments do have some, you know, they have uh, some serious you know, power to actually redistribute resources in an equitable fashion. Absolutely true. But Kendi seemed, and I, I looked very carefully in this book, anytime he talked about economics, I was looking for him to explain how the mechanism for, for these anti-racist policies. And it seems to me that the, the only way you could implement his economic policies is if you had some kind of um, very, very powerful state, like almost like a like something like like the Chinese state, perhaps, but probably even more, probably even more than the Chinese. You'd have to have a very large, powerful state that um, that basically appropriated the vast majority of the resources and then redistributed them. Um, you know, but the the thing is, is like every time that's been tried, it's been a complete disaster. Well, I would argue that it that that's exactly what happened. The state systematically denied in the the black community and enriched the white community in many many ways and created the current wealth gap. The wealth gap was entirely created through state policy, entirely. So that the fact that the wealth gap was created through state policy and, and, and laws that continue to exist, there's no reason to say that, well, we need to make laws that undo those effects. I mean, the New Deal was a sweeping policy. The GI Bill affected millions of people, getting them into homes, getting them educations. But it was white people who got all those benefits. The Farm Bill has put black farmers out of business. This mm-hmm. is this, it's been benefiting white farmers. Monsanto is almost entirely, at least initially, was subsidized through government investments. You know, public private partnerships, whatever you, whatever they are, they're still effectively the state in the economy areas of the economy where they control. So, I don't get that out of Kendi at all that this is the only solution, the final solution, because all of those impacts took 
generations to to achieve, right? You did yeah. incremental effects, right? I mean, Roosevelt had to be reelected four times in order to get all of his agenda through. And then we we still needed to have the you know, GI Bill renewed. We still needed to have the farm bills passed every time. But all of those are explicitly racist laws. I mean, they actually explicitly allow the government to deny benefits to these people and give benefits to those people because they enable individuals and local banks, local communities, they, they empower them to make the decision on you get the money, but you don't. Yeah. So I, No, I totally, I actually, I read um, earlier on this summer when it came out, Heather McGee's book, um, The Sum of Us, um, how, how Racism uh, harms us all or something like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, very interesting book. And she sort of goes in detail through all the policies that you were just referring to, um, from the redlining to the New Deal mm-hmm. to the all of the to the GI Bill. She goes like just step by step. She uh, she speaks in a lot of I mean, unlike Kendi is more uh, in terms of his style, he's very yes. much uh, an evangelical. You can totally. I mean, I I was a like a Pentecostal Christian as a teenager, and I mm-hmm. and I can totally hear him, the evangelical Christian upbringing in, especially in the last third of the book, he talks like like an evangelical like pastor, like so, so, so much. Mm-hmm. But it's very kind of like, like you say, it's, it's up in the, it's very theoretical. It's very kind of, whereas Heather McGee is really granular, you know, numbers, smoking guns, sure. this policy, that policy, this thing, here's what the result was. Here's, and she quotes directly from the law and from the, it shows like the numbers and stuff. So she's got all the receipts as they say, right? And uh, so she she makes the case that uh, that absolutely that these gaps were, were produced by, by government policy. I guess my question is, is yes, I know that um, the state can kind of sop up a lot of resources in various ways through taxes, through other means, by sort of taking over particular industries and and running them. You know, I don't think that's necessary, though. They didn't need to do it then. Ah, <laughs> so well, I mean, the, the, the state can do that, but I, it seems to me that the vast majority of wealth creation, the vast majority of, of economic activity, happens um, apart from the state. Like it's just people starting businesses failing, uh, starting different things, having, like, there's all, I mean, if you look at the black market economies, like, those are all just, they emerge kind of spontaneously from relationships that people have with each other and agreements that they have with each other. And the state has nothing to do with it. You know, I I was sort of a troublemaker when I was a teenager, and I would, you know, dealt illegal cigarettes and, you know, other stuff. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that whole economy was outside of the state. And I think like, I'll, it seems to me that most of the most of economic activity happens um, outside of outside of the state. So when when the state, you know, has, you know, a lot of contracts to give out when the state has, you know, very like when they've taken it and they're redistributing. Yes. At that point, the state absolutely can um, put its thumb on the scale, as it were for this group or that group that they that they kind of have preferential treatment and they can create inequalities 
um, or try and remedy inequalities that way. I think that's absolutely true. But it seems to me that my guess would be, even if the government sort of decided, as Kendi says, that we're going to implement anti-racist policies at every level, and we're going to try as much as possible to uh, to sort of bridge these gaps and get rid of uh, inequities and stuff like that. And it's going to cost money. Absolutely. It's going to sure. cost money. Uh, but I suspect, I strongly suspect that even if the government did that and was 100% committed to it, I think you would still have um, unequal outcomes, group outcomes. And you wouldn't, um, you know, you just, in a place like, in a place like Canada, the United States, you would still have unequal outcomes because the state doesn't have total control of the economy. The state doesn't even have, doesn't even control like the majority of the economy. The majority of the economy is happening um, just spontaneously from people doing what people do. You said said something else. You mentioned that these, these, a lot of these businesses come up kind of organically and outside of the state control. Well, a lot of businesses in the black community are restricted to the illegal markets, right? So we've, we've made, we've made a lot of the things that, that black people are trying to build. And I'm not speaking generally about all black people, but in these black communities, a lot of the uh, wealth creation that seems to be happening seems to be in the illicit drug trade. That's, mm-hmm. that's statistically what seems to happen, but there's a lot of unemployed people. There's a lot of undereducated people. So, I mean, when you, when you, when they made marijuana illegal, they were targeting black people when they did it in the first place, when they listed it in the first place. I mean, yeah. it's, it can't be understated. Now, when we make it legal, we restrict ownership of the businesses to white people who have tons of wealth and who can invest in those licenses. So the entrepreneurs that were working in the marijuana industry for decades are shut out of this handout industry that's been given to relatives of Congress people, basically. So mm-hmm. that that's that's just what that's doing is saying, oh, wow, that is a profitable model. Let's take it for ourselves. <laughs> right? So we, so basically wealth creation, I mean, Thomas Edison did not ever make an electrical grid. He, he failed to do it. Lewis Latimer did it. He was the superintendent of, so there's a bunch of innovation that comes from everywhere. But if you don't put people in the room together, if they don't go to school together, if, you know, they don't live together, they can't, meet over a table and hash out a deal. They can't go into partnerships. So I'm not saying that government needs to take over the economy and say this job is here and that job is there. I'm saying that we need to undo racist policies at every level. That goes from childcare to healthcare. People need people have 10 years less life expectancy if they're black in the Baltimore area compared to if they're white. That's a problem that government should be involved in. We should be thinking about public health. So it's not just economic aid. It's not just handing out money to everything. But if if Black people were able to get up higher in the home ownership rates, we know from examples that things would improve in a lot of areas. Um, So right now, our incarceration rates 
are incredibly high. I mean, in, in Baltimore, there are, there are 20% of the population is black. 60% are killed in police shootings. 40% are incarcerated. I mean, what this is like 60% are killed in. No, 60% of the people killed in police shootings in Baltimore are black, mm. but only 20% of the population. That means that if you're black in Baltimore, you're three times the rate likely to be killed by a police officer. So these are the kind of numbers that, to me, indicate it's time for action. And you see a, a small town in, in um, Illinois doing reparations. They gave 16 families money to put a down payment on a home. That's great that one government was able to do some housing assistance, but that's that one government. So you need the state in order to affect change because what will happen is progressive localities will do a little bit here and there. And generally it's not enough. It's too little. It's too late. But I think you do need federal efforts to get in. I mean, what's happening in Chicago right now with the mayor saying we've got to do something about guns in Chicago because it's killing our police, not just mm-hmm. our population. And we're saying, well, that's Chicago. You know, who cares about the fact that all the guns are coming from Wisconsin and Indiana? You know, so we have this in the United States. Anyway, we have this local control kind of mindset. Every school district is controlled locally. Every 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 state can make their own policy for masks or for for educational resources or for teaching certification. And when that happens is you get you get so many disparate landscapes you don't, and racism is not something that is just local. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? one, of the, one of the things that I, I definitely was like, I got to ask him about this, uh, which I found quite, quite interesting was, um, you know, when he talks about how like for education and for integration, that in fact, um, integration is not necessarily like such a great thing that very often yeah. um, integration um, what it meant in practice was that it destroyed a lot of kind of black uh, owned businesses because, you know, once you, once you got rid of uh, segregation, once you break those things down uh, in practice, it means that a, a larger white owned company or whatever can move into there and can offer the same goods or services at, you know, lower prices and things like that. So they put them, they sort of Amazon all of the, like, mm-hmm. all the, the smaller black owned businesses. And so there's that problem. But then he takes it much farther. And Kendi says that, uh, that which I, it was the first time I had heard about this was that Martin Luther King Jr. actually um, said, and I, I, I looked it up because I, I was so surprised mm-hmm. when he said this. I looked I it up know. and actually he said it a number of times. Um, that he obviously was against segregation, obviously he was a you know, civil rights leader, but he thought that education was a special case and that uh, because of racism and things like that and low expectations, that it was not a good idea to integrate all the schools and have the, uh, as young black boys and girls being taught by white teachers who would be, uh, most of them surely racist in various ways. Mm-hmm. 
Now, um, you know, you know what that was. You and I, to. I there are was, both there was... like white educators. Uh, what did you think? What did you think about this? Well, because there were many qualified black teachers in Martin Luther King's day that were forcibly unemployed. So when they integrated those schools, they only integrated the students, not the faculty. So all of these professionals that had gone to universities and gotten teaching certificates, they didn't have to hire them when they integrated schools. The Brown v. Board said nothing about the adult population. So, I mean, I've taught in a black high school with, with a much less diverse um, faculty than, than, I, than I would expect in a black high school. It's because most kids at that high school didn't even go to college. So where are we getting our next generation of black teachers from? I teach in a school now that's almost entirely white um, in Sutton, Massachusetts, but we have no black faculty, really no faculty at all who isn't white. Um, and they complain to me, well, nobody applies. We don't have anybody. Well, they're also not recruiting in those neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, I, I know that I don't, understand fully i can't experience the, what what racism being a victim of racism is but um both of my children are black and my wife is from haiti and she and oh, i wow there's a massive Haitian community up here in Montreal, oh, yeah, we have we have family in saint laurent okay so <laughs> okay. so you know i mean and they both were professors at university there so but in any case, so what I'm saying is that I can, I lived adjacent to the black community growing up in the Chicago area. I taught in an inner city school. I worked with my children trying to get them through. I mean, my nine-year-old son was accused of raping three teenage girls while I was with him at a scout. A nine-year-old? That's absurd. He was kicked out of the school. Um, it was, this is That's the horrible. thing. That I live in a white topia town. I mean, this is in order to get away from my, what my wife perceived. She went to a finishing school in Haiti. It was a very high-end school. All of her classmates are all professionals in the United States now. Mm-hmm. So for her and for me, it was like um, our conversation was, well, our kids are getting surrounded by gangbangers trying to get them to be mules in Boston, trying to get them into trouble. They kind of look a little Brazilian, black, you know, and so they were getting lumped in the disciplinary policies there. So we're like, let's get away from this and move to Connecticut. And so we moved to a place that's like a farmland where it's like more cows than people. And what we get here is racism like I'd never experienced. Wow. So, you know, so the thing is, I do see it but again, I'm adjacent to it. So it's not surprising to me that, that white people need to be evangelized because you, you really, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awakening. And I hate this, this woke term, the way it's been co-opted into something as an insult. But it really was an awakening for me. I mean, until you've had a rock thrown at you because you're walking in South Boston holding hands with your wife. Um, or your wife comes home confused because a nun at her hospital where she was working called her a, a, the N-word. Wow. You know, I mean, this is something she was trained by nuns. You know, nuns were her teachers at the school in Haiti from Canada, actually, Canadian nuns. Yeah. So, you know, she, she was shocked by this. 
And my kids were the first in our family to have to grow up black in this country. And we wow. had to come together on this. And they came home with stories, being told to go back to Africa, being asked to represent all of the African continent, just because they're the one kid who's brown in the, in the classroom. Cedric, can you stand up and tell us, what was the perspective of an African in the 1920s? In... <laughs> oh, my God. That is so offensive. So. It, so it's not even microaggressions. These are macro, like racist yeah. things that, that happen to people on a daily basis. So, I mean, this book here is a lot of the same kind of ideas that I just needed to crystallize. But growing up, I thought that somebody got a job ahead of me because they were Black. I believed it. And when I told my then fiancé, you know, that what had happened to me as a teenager, she said, that's crazy. I, don't, I thought you were actually an open-minded, nice guy. Who did they <laughs> hire? And I looked back and no black person ever worked there. So my thought that a black person had taken my job obviously came from the, the racist white supremacy privilege machine that I was all more than willing to accept. So, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think if I don't think any if any white person ha says they have a black friend, therefore, all of their racist views are OK. I don't think they've ever actually had a black friend or maybe they just haven't had a real conversation with that black acquaintance to the point where my wife and I had to have those conversations because we had to be of the same on the same team. When our children, she told me when we were dating, you're your son is going to come to you and say, they told me this. And I need you to be able to, to take their word for it. Because she told me that somebody said something to her in, an, in the academic office. And I was like making excuses for the worker. Right? Yeah. This is what we do. I mean, we, we, we can't handle that, uh, that racism is real because that might implicate ourselves. And, but, you know, I, I was, I was forced into it, you know, to, to take this understanding. I, and I dove in because I love my wife, but I mean, I don't, I don't know any other way than radical evangelization or people actually throwing themselves into the black communities of the, of the world and getting to experience it, you know, because now when I walk into, I'm a teacher I walk into a classroom and a child utters a microaggression and there happens to be one black kid in my classroom. I see it. I hear it. I can address it. But there's no way that any other teacher in the school would have ever noticed. I don't believe yeah. it. Yeah, well, you I don't mean, notice think, it all the time. I think this is this is something you know that, that Kendi talks about a lot. And also, I, 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 before Kendi, I read uh, Robin D'Angelo's new book, Nice Racism. Yeah, I haven't read that uh, one yet. You know, one of the, one of the things that they both talk about is that, you know, if you're white, you need to talk to uh, white people, to people of color, and ask them about their experiences. And you have to, uh, she says, you need to kind of accept yeah. what they say um, at face value. You should not ask any questions. You shouldn't uh, be critical in any way. You shouldn't say, "Well, are you sure you're not misunderstanding that and everything." Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I definitely see 
as a as a sort of a rule of thumb or a heuristic, um, that's probably a good idea, especially to counteract um, to counteract kind of the prevailing notion, you know, which Me Too was fighting against as well, of not being believed and the presumption being that you're it's all in your head or something like that. So I get. I get By the way, that. you should do that all the time. I mean, you should do that with everyone you meet. You should do that with your children when they come home from school and they and they've had a bad day and they they complain. You should actually meet them at face value. It's amazing how much people will talk to you if you actually take their word for it when they're telling you about their experience. I think that's I think that's true. However, I, I've had um, I've dealt with in my family and among my friends a fair amount of. Uh, of severe mental illness and, and minor, minor mental illness. Um, I've also experienced firsthand um, sort of older people who are suffering from early onset uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, various things like that. Um, and also just in myself, I've, I've felt in myself the fact that sometimes, uh, you know, one example that I, I think of is I, I got a really bad flu. Um, you know, uh, two years ago, two, two years ago, really bad one. And I was like sick as a dog for like two weeks. But when the flu was coming on before I really got symptoms, I was just in a terrible, terrible mood. And mm-hmm. I, I was like picking fights with my, like picking fights. I was taking everything that my wife said or my son said or my colleagues at work, everything the wrong way. I was getting like offended by everybody. And yeah. I was just, I, I, in one day I got into like, and I, I almost never do this. I got into like three arguments in one day, which is more than I'd had like in the previous, you know, probably six months, you know, and, um, and then the symptoms came on and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's what I was coming down. I was sick. I wasn't thinking straight. Right. Sure. And I was, and so sure. it was like warping my thinking. And, you know, my, my mother growing up was, was very Buddhist and she, and in Buddhism, similar to Stoicism in the Western tradition, it says that, you know, you have to really evaluate your reactions to things and you should not take your reactions to things at face value because often, you know, you're getting offended and it's because your blood sugar is low or you're coming down with the flu or you're really overtired because the baby's not sleeping and it's driving you fucking crazy. Like, you know, you, and so you have a really short fuse or you just found out that your mother's got breast cancer and it's mm-hmm. really like, and so you're very stressed out. And so you take everything the wrong way. Right. Yeah. So I think, I, I think it's, you know, there has to be like, like some prudence and balance here. And I think uh, Kendi is much more reasonable on the score. D'Angelo, I find is just, uh, it kind of like her, the way she defines microaggressions and the way she, de- it just seems like a recipe for bad communication. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think you should take anybody's sort of impressions of things, um, you know, at, at face value all the time. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, imagine if you were like a police detective and that was the way you, you did things. Like you have to ask questions and look for evidence. Like you have to, uh, 
you know, I mean, to give you an example of something that happened to us. Yeah, but you don't, you don't yeah. do this in their presence. You don't do this while they're giving their testimonial to you, right? You take away from that conversation. But you want to, if you want to continue conversing with someone, you don't fact check them while they're talking to you face to face. That's not how conversation. Yeah, yeah that's a dick move. Happens, that's right? not gonna. That's not gonna go anywhere. But we um, do this. We do this all the time. And what D'Angelo is experiencing, and I'm sorry for cutting you off, but what she's experiencing as diversity trainer is as soon as she gives an anecdote, as soon as she gives a story, people immediately say, but I'm not racist. That's not me. I've got a black friend. She hears it over and over and over. So she can diagnose those responses because she's she knows what they're getting at. She knows where they're going and she knows that that's not, that's not a reasonable response. And sadly for those folks that are getting called out by her, that she's not having a conversation with them. She's teaching you, right? But uh, what I'm talking about is actually when you're engaging in interpersonal communication, mm-hmm. you, should, you, should do, you should do well to be a better listener than we sometimes are. Um, yeah. Not no, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. I just, I think it's, it's, it's dangerous to, to take that, to take that so far uh, to say that, you know, there's particular people who for one reason or another have like epistemic privilege and they, they can see things and they just need to be absolutely deferred to right now. I, you know, if if we're talking about, you know, whether you should get vaccinated against, you know, COVID-19 or not, I definitely will default to deferring to people who are experts in that field absolutely well because i don't really i don't i don't i I think i probably know quite a bit more than the average lay person but i don't even know a fraction of what you know an expert in that field knows right and so i will generally but that being said i i don't I don't think I, I'm required to defer to them all the time because, of course, there's experts that have crazy views. There's experts who mm-hmm. think that climate change is a hoax. <laughs> there's, experts, there's people with PhDs who believe all sorts of wacky things. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily. It just means that as a general rule, and likewise, if we're talking about uh, racial profiling or police brutality, uh, I'm going to defer to somebody who's actually experienced that stuff more than my own experience my because that just seems like the the smart move there i mean like but at the same time it doesn't mean that you can't um you can't ask some questions gently and ask sure you know and you can um but to give you an example something that happened to one of my students and she works at a pharmacy it's sort of the the quebec version of shoppers drug marts uh, here farmer pre and um she was they it's they had had a couple of like fake hundred dollar bills and $50 bills that were passed um, in the store. And so they instituted a new policy. They put at all the cash registers, they put like those machines that check the bills to see if they're legit and yeah. uh, with the lights or whatever. And then, um, and they put a sign up on each cash uh, saying like, we check all 50 and hundred dollar bills. And they told the cashiers uh, that they have like cameras on all the caches. And they said, you uh, have to check all your 
$1,500 bills. And if you don't, the first time you'll get a warning, the second time you will be fired. Mm-hmm. So they have this new policy. So then this, um, this young uh, African-American or African-Canadian woman came into, uh, Haitian actually, uh, came into the pharmacy. So not African, Haitian. And, uh, yeah, uh, Haitian <laughs> Canadian. Um, the, well, I'm, I'm kind of like smushing together two different stories in my head here. But anyway, so they came in and came up to the cash and she went to pay with a, with a $50 bill. And um, my, my student just sort of took the bill and like went to go, like put it in the machine to check it. And she immediately got very, very angry and said, you're only checking that because I'm black. And she took out her cell phone and started filming her and said, hashtag everyday racism. And like, you know, this is like a teenage girl working at a pharmacy, like you know, right. little like Filipina chick. Like she was completely, she was completely mortified and so 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 embarrassed and so she's like no it's a policy like look there's the sign it's i have to check everybody's she said yeah do not like you're microaggressing me and don't like deny my experience and this is you know what this is racist and and then she posted it like on social media it went like you know viral for a little while until it was taken down she like her family saw it her friends everybody was like you're a racist and all this stuff and she was absolutely absolutely devastated she like actually had to take like mental health leave from the guy she was and i just it seems to me that if you set up a situation where you're you're telling people you're giving people a huge list of um of actions and, 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 you know, somebody asking you where you're from or somebody, you know, all these things that, and, yeah, well, and saying that all of those things are, are acts of stories about that. <laughs> no, I know that's the thing. I know that's the thing. Uh, for sure. Uh, it's incredibly, and it can be really, really annoying, but the craziest is I have, you know, I have uh, sort of indigenous, students who are you know mohawk and they and they've been here for like thousands of years and mm-hmm. they get asked by by white um usually white francophones here in quebec you know so where are you from and like, Canada. Canada. i'm from here <laughs> you came here <laughs> like uh but they uh so yeah I, I i get that that's a thing but it just seems to me that if you if you set people up in such a way as to be always like having the most uncharitable interpretation of every word and action. It just, it seems to me that um, this is just a recipe for, you know, a lot of conflict and strife. And also, you know, as uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff uh, point out in their book, um, The Coddling of the American Mind, they say that um, actually these kinds of doctrines of microaggression, they cause the biggest problem in um, colleges and universities and high schools where you have a lot of um, recent immigrants to the country or people who don't have a really good grasp of, of uh, the language of instruction. And so their, their English skills or, or here or their French skills are not really, really great. And so they, they misspeak. They don't know the right word and so they're, they're more likely to say something, not because they are intending to be offensive. It's just they don't have a very good grasp of the language yet. And if you tell people mm-hmm. that you should interpret all of those things in the worst possible way, it just seems 
I, I don't know how that would make things better. Well, well, we've got two problems here. One is that there are lots of microaggressions. There are there is a lot of racism, but we've take, taken racism and instead of making it a descriptive term, we've made it a pejorative. So people are getting canceled, right? And I just put air quotes up. We, people are getting canceled because of a microaggression because up until now, nobody's been called on it at all. And we've been told it's, you know, no, no, I can't be called racist because that would make me a bad person. That's happening so much that we miss the opportunity to turn these into teachable moments. So maybe the store policy should have been executed more carefully. Maybe it should have been more thoughtfully. Maybe they shouldn't have put all that pressure on cashiers. You know, maybe they should have had some other situation. Maybe the kids in the schools that can't speak the language very well yet, maybe they should be addressed, maybe in a classroom setting, maybe in an individual setting, but maybe instead of a disciplinary punitive sense, socially or school policy, maybe we should make it a teachable moment. When children walked up next to my son, who was in like a junior in high school, and they're waiting for the teacher to get done with a class that are standing in line outside of the classroom, they start making monkey noises in his ear. He didn't know what to do with that. I mean, that was not good, right? Mm -hmm. When a kid drove by the drove by him when he was standing waiting to be picked up and yelled the N-word at him and peeled off. You know, what do we do with those situations? Wouldn't it be better if we could educate that situation instead of punish that situation? Because what happened with the monkey noises is we went to the dean, he went to the teacher. Everybody was all mortified. They punished those two kids. As soon as those kids were done with their punishment, they beat my son. Ugh. So it doesn't solve anything. All it does is harden hearts. So what we need to do is we need to de-emphasize the um, pejorative nature of all this and treat it as a, a stain on the entire society. Your cashier was hurt. That was a bad thing that happened to that person. That was, that was, she suffered, definitely. But what was the root cause of that suffering? It's systemic racism. That's the root cause. So if we treat this as, as a teachable moment, if Amy Cooper in, in, um, in, in that park, when she called the police on that poor man. <sighs> Unbelievable. That yeah, was but, so, that but was she, she felt she had no choice but to defend herself as a non-racist person. So, if we had a culture of being able to actually talk about racism where we could actually confront it, maybe we could have lower key conversations when these mistakes happen because there are mistakes. People, people are hurt. These feelings are legitimate. If we could just have conversations about these things instead of making it, you know, cross burnings, you know, maybe we would actually be able to improve socially. This is separate from policy. You know, but as a community, we need to delegitimize, I guess, the pejorative nature of these things. Microaggressions in the high school where I teach, I've advocated to get them completely out of the disciplinary system. When they happen, we approach them in our social studies courses. And it's a small high school. It's only 500 students, almost entirely white. But we've got some kids who came in from Nigeria. We've got some kids from Puerto Rico. So we've have, we have opportunities to make it a teachable situation with young people. 
if if we could train young people the kinds of thing Robin D'Angelo, if you really understood what she's trying to do in her training seminars, she's trying to teach us how to break these things, deconstruct them, and how to turn them into teachable moments. But I think our initial reaction is what we've been taught to believe, that racism is a character flaw. It's you're, you're bad for doing it. It's good versus evil. It, that completely just creates outrage versus outrage versus outrage. And we don't learn anything from that. We just get deeper into our camps. Yeah. One of the most fascinating claims, my, this was, I think, my wife's favorite part of uh, Kendi's book and his argument. Uh, she, my wife is a sociologist, so she would like mm-hmm. this. Is, um, you know, he says, and actually he elaborated on this. He was on the Ezra Klein show. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was talking about the new book and you know how to be an anti-racist. And uh, they actually, they talked about, um, well, they, they didn't say Robin D'Angelo's name out loud, but it was very clear who they were talking about. And uh, Ezra Klein said, um, you know, and this is a guy who's, you know, very progressive, uh, very kind of anti-racist guy. And uh, uh, he said, you know, you know, to go back to your earlier point about, you know, the clinical trials for drugs and things like that, and how you, you have to look at the results and, as a client said, you know, if you look at the results of these anti-racist trainings and diversity trainings, it's terrible. Um, it's they really they don't. He said, you know, all the data that we have so far on these things is that they um, they don't make things better. No, nope. um, and they very often make things worse. That this is like, uh, and you know, that this is like not of. Uh, not a good idea that being told by your your company or your government department or your college or your that you okay you've got to take this training right um, it doesn't have the outcome that um, so he was saying that this is largely a feel good measure for governments for Starbucks for you know whatever it's a feel good measure to make it look like they're doing something about the problem. Um, by calling in and paying a bunch of money to go through this, like, you know, anti-racist training or something like that. So what, uh, what Kendi's point was, is he said, well, the mistaken assumption in all of this is that somehow we have to change the hearts and minds, you know, the moral suasion, we have to convince people to, to change, you know, the, the famous line, I think it was Eisenhower, uh, President Eisenhower, he said, you know, you can't change the hearts and minds of of the people by changing the laws. Kendi says that's completely backwards. Um, he says, actually, the first thing that happens is the policy and the laws. That's the chicken. And the, the racism is the egg. It's not the other way. It's not as if like people are, well, okay, it's a little more complicated than that. Yes, people are racist people, you know, come up with these policies and and to sort of reinforce these racist assumptions. However, once the policy is in place, once the institution's set up, once the system is set up, once the laws are in place, after that, the people who are administering the system, they don't have to be personally racist. In fact, they can be anti-racist. They can be, you know, they can be, it doesn't really matter because the system is in place. And then once that system is in place, um, people adopt racist ideas as a way to justify the inequality around them. 
because they have to explain, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is why if, if you look in the 19th century in the United States you know, with the pro-slavery argument, I mean, the contortions that mm-hmm. Southern intellectuals bent themselves into, you know, people like George Fitzhugh, for instance, I mean, mm-hmm. really crazy. I like the, the, the contortions that they bent themselves into to explain why in a place devoted to uh, the proposition that all men are created equal and they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Uh, like, I, the idea that in a country based on ideas like that in the declaration and stuff like that would have slavery, they needed all these like very racist ideas to, to justify why that made sense. Right. Um, so, I mean, what do you think about that idea that for Kendi, it's the, it's the policy that comes first mm-hmm. and that produces. And so if you change the policy um, sooner or later, that will change the, um, the hearts and minds. Well, he thinks that policy carries great power. I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Um, I do know that at a, you know, we have something called title nine in the United States and title nine provides for the kind of legal framework around diversity training at universities. So my youngest is going to St. John's University in Queens, New York. Um, he'll be a freshman there. And he had to undergo this diversity training. So I watched it over his shoulder, and it was bad. I would say it was <laughs> not well researched. It was it was it completely ignored, like it started talking about gender and completely ignored misogyny altogether. And these are training kids how to live together in a dormitory. And it was basically a PowerPoint presentation with a little quiz at the end where you could have gotten all the questions wrong and still got credit. So this is the same program that's used by Georgia Tech, that's used by, um, I, I went down the list, there were a ton of other universities that were using the same exact training seminar. So I think we're doing it badly. I, I don't necessarily think he's speaking about D'Angelo in particular here. But I think our diversity training efforts, I mean, the one that we had at my high school where I teach, also, it completely ignored all the people in the room that said, well, I'm not racist. And basically, it was a feel-good event. It was an event to say, oh, well, you know, if you're non-racist, good, yay. (laughs) You know, so that's not diversity training. It can't be a one-off thing. It can't be, we're going to bring Robin D'Angelo to talk to you for an hour. That's that's not that's not even what Robin D'Angelo proposes. That's not her idea at all, because she worked as a diversity trainer and saw how hopeless it was. She wrote books, but she's so, still doing it, and she's, she's still, doing, she's still doing it the same way. It's it's still worth the effort because it's better than doing nothing at all, right? You well, might. I think, think what Ezra Klein was was implying is that uh, that maybe. You know, maybe nothing at all would be better than than this particular because it's not it's not working. And Kendi, like that's one of the things that he says. You know, near the end of um, how to be an anti racist, he says, you know, we are so obsessed with like our own pure hearts and our own kind of like anti racist like credentials and, and and all this stuff and. We're not nearly, and we're obsessed with process and, and all these things. Mm-hmm. And, and we really need to be focused on results. And so, and he talks, and you know, it's interesting because the book is, uh, for those of you who have 
yet to read it, it's um, it's very often kind of memoir, right? It seems from the title yes. that it's going to be a kind of a preachy manual. It's actually not. It's mostly kind of a memoir. And he very often sort of talks, uses himself as a, you know, talks about his own racism and his own anti-Black racism, his own uh, mm-hmm. his own internalized homophobia and misogyny. He talks about his own anti-white racism that uh, mm-hmm. he had for quite a while and and all these different things. Quite fascinating. Uh, but his his take on it is that um, you can't you you can't look at it as like a personal virtue problem. That mm-hmm. you know the, there's these bad people that are. Um, it's a bad, you know, bad system. You know, and this is to go back to what we were talking about with education. I think I thought that bit of a Brown versus Board of Education was absolutely, and Plessy versus Fergus was absolutely fascinating. That, yes. that in fact there were all there were all these uh, people within the black community who really were very uncomfortable with the reasoning behind Brown. They understood mm-hmm. that it was like a, a means yeah. to an end. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. this is, you know, we're going to, you know, bite our tongues and like, because this is, a, this is a, a winning argument within the context of these times, but they did see that by pathologizing, mm-hmm. you know, black yes. schools and black neighborhoods, that this was really, this might end up being a kind of a Pyrrhic victory. It was, know, what, it was what he called an assimilationist. Uh, decision. Yeah. It's the, the idea that we have an inferior culture, but they can be improved and get up to the same level as the superior culture. Yeah, exactly. And that, and and actually, there were plenty of people at the time, a lot of black educators, who said, "No, we don't need to integrate. We we just just give us the same amount of funding that those schools get. Let's just make sure all the schools get the same uh, same funding." And I mean. You know, Canadians just, I think, Canadians don't understand the extent of educational inequality in the States. And I, I've tried to explain it to them very often, and they, they kind of shake their heads. They, they think I'm exaggerating. But private schools in the in Maryland, um, where I lived for, for quite some time and where I met my wife and did my grad school, like private schools down there, they look like, like liberal arts colleges. Yeah, here. unbelievably in nice, shiny yeah. computers everywhere. The library is jacked. Mm-hmm. They've got beautiful trees. The your chemistry teacher has a PhD in chemistry. Your right. like your your teachers actually know their shit. They didn't just like you know read the textbook a week before class started. They really and then meanwhile, uh, my wife worked in in education for. Uh, for quite a while we were in Baltimore and she would take me sometimes like to the high schools in Baltimore and unbelievable. Like the paint is peeling down. It's nothing works. Everything's broken. Uh, Mm -hmm. The teachers are like some of the teachers, I mean, they're making like 24,000 at the time they were making like $24,000 a year. Uh, A lot of them were just barely literate themselves. Moving out of the city. I made $20,000 or more, more just to move into a suburban community. It's a $20,000 salary difference in the same state. That is, uh, that is just, that's wild. You know, and so they, there was, it's just not a fair fight. Like, even if you show up to school and you do all your work and you, you're going to end up graduating and you're going to be like profoundly like undereducated. You're not going to really be able to, and this is uh, Daniel Markowitz in his, uh, his book, The Meritocracy Trap. 
he talks about this a great deal and he, but he looks at it from a class point of view. And he says, right now, the gap between the, um, the top 10% in the United States, the gap between the top 10% of students who are these private school educated, their ed- achievement gap and education gap uh, between them and, and this is just white students, the gap between elite white students and middle-class white students is now larger than the gap between black kids and white kids before Brown versus Board mm-hmm. of Education. It's massive, right? And obviously race just amplifies this. But he says, you know, that this inequality in education, it is really, really kind of setting up a situation where even if you do everything conservatives tell you to do, you know, don't do drugs, kids, stay home, study, do your things, you know, even if you do everything you're supposed to do, you are getting an inferior product. Like your education sucks. You go against a kid who's got the same, you know, IQ as you, same sort of like basic kind of and who went through a different system, they are just so much better educated than you. Like you're years behind them in math, it's, it's in languages, in everything, right? It's generational. My wife and I have college educations. Um, we recognized deficits in the school because I taught in the, in the school and I could see that I wouldn't want my kid in this school. So I made the decision to go someplace else. But when we went to buy a house in this neighborhood, the real estate agent who represented the seller refused to meet with us, would not sell us the house, would not even talk to us because my wife is black. So there was no doubt he, that, that he would not deal with us. He actually sat himself out of the whole negotiation. It's because the owner of the house was French Canadian. Mm -hmm. My wife spoke French fluently. He showed us the house, which is not the procedure (laughs) that you do. The lawyer we met for the house and we bought this house. He was like, I don't know what's up with this agent because he checked out of this process. When we needed to get a foster dog in this area, I had to go by myself because when my wife and I tried to go together, no dice. I went by myself and just acted like I'm living alone. Here's your foster dog. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's every level and it, it reinforces itself because my children benefited because we were able to put them into a really high-end school, Woodstock Academy, which is like circa 1812 or something. It's really old high school with, you know, it's got two campuses with a shuttle between them. And they bought a college locally and added more buildings. They've got 200 residential students that pay tuition from overseas to go there. And it's a public high school. It's wow. a public high school. And that's compared to the high school where I taught in Boston, where I had to bring a copy machine with me to school because we only had a Mimeo, which I don't know if you know about a Mimeo. Yeah, yeah. That's carbons. <laughs> that's and, like an eight-track player. That's great. Right. That's what we had <laughs> in like 2006. So I had my own copy machine because we only had three textbooks for the entire class to share. So I had to copy the assignments and give them to them. I mean, my son got an iPad when he started the high school. So it's it's a completely different world. It's like you're in two different countries. So when Kendi says there's two Americas, you know, at least two, you know, it's certainly the case. So, but we spend, here's a quote from him. It says, we spend too much time thinking about how we feel 
and not enough time thinking about how our racist ideas and policies make others feel. And I think you can extend that to how you make others be educated, how much we make others, you know, we, we hyper-focus on our local communities here in the States because everything's funded by local property taxes. You know, our, our school districts um, in the inner city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, or Hartford, Connecticut, or Worcester, they're funded at only 60% of what Sutton, where I teach, is, or other, other school districts. I mean, just it's incredible. And then when you start adding things in like, oh, we'll have this policy where we'll let kids from the city come out to our school, you know, the other district will send and they'll pay tuition. All that does is it kind of selects the kids who are whose parents are the most with it and they get those kids into the busing program and those kids leave the school district and that school district that's already struggling has to send money away out of the district to support another. I mean, this this will be unheard of in Canada. No, it you know, it's, it's interesting because the uh, <laughs> it's one of my hobby horses is, but the, you know, Finland right now, my, my wife is, is half Finnish and like the, Finland has the, uh, it has like the best school system in the world right now. They outperform. And what's amazing is that they outperform places like South Korea and Singapore and Japan and places where students are jumping off of buildings because they're so stressed out and they, they have like, you know, hours and hours of homework every single day. And so what's amazing is that Finland is getting these amazing results, uh, but they're not doing, they're not taking the East Asian sort of route. Their uh, kids start school later. They start at like seven, you know, and they, rather than like having pre-K and all this stuff, they, they, uh, parents get a lot of paid leave to stay home with their kids and, and they think it's better for parents to be raising their kids when they're young rather than, uh, you know, paid people. And then uh, once they get into school, they get long summers off. They get, um, they, for, they don't even have any homework until they're about like 13, 14, uh, no homework. When you come home, you're free completely. Uh, you learn what you're supposed to learn in school rather than the teachers outsourcing the education to the parents and things like that. But anyway, what's amazing is when you look at the Finnish success story and you talk to, you hear kind of presentations from their education minister, uh, they say, well, you know, they actually had one of the worst systems in Europe mm -hmm. and they decided to reform it. And one of the first things they did was they outlawed private schools. They said, you know, everybody's got to be, in the public school system because you know when when wealthy people when people with money and privilege and 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 connections and clout and people they can call and complain when people with power and privilege have to use the same um, school as and have to have their kids policed and taught and, mm -hmm. and healed in hospitals but in the same places they have a way of making sure that everything works Right. They have a way of like, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, the classic example I, I always say of this is uh, there's a, a college that shall, re shall remain nameless, uh, uh, that there was a problem that the bathrooms were always disgusting. They were a mess. They didn't have toilet paper. They, the toilets were clogged. It was gross. I mean, it was uncivilized. And mm -hmm. uh, this was something that the faculty complained about. Students complained about again and again and again. And nothing was happening. And, and so finally, some ingenious uh, uh, guy who was a couple of years away from retirement uh, 
he had this bright idea, very like kind of King Solomon. Yeah, cut the baby in half. It was a very kind of King Solomon solution. He said, uh, well, we're in a space crunch right now in the college. So um, why don't we tell the uh, the administration, the executives, the people running the college with the suits, come in in suits and fancy dress every day. Why don't we say that we need to take, take away their private bathrooms and turn them into more storage space and classroom space. Now, because they had been lecturing us for the previous, oh, oh I just said us. <laughs> because they had been like lecturing and saying how we uh, needed to be three in a two-person office, uh, four in a three-person office for two years because of the space crunch, they couldn't turn around and say no to this proposition. It would like make them look horribly hypocritical. Mm -hmm. So they had to, uh, their private bathrooms were turned into other uses. And so now the people in the suits running the place, they had to use the same bathrooms as the students and teachers. There's never been a problem with the bathrooms since then, ever. Mm -hmm. They're always clean. They always smell oh. good. They do, because guess what? If it's not working, they call and make sure it's fixed, right? So if you have if you have a two-tiered system where you take all the most powerful people and you put their kids in mm -hmm. private schools and you put them in private hospitals and, and they don't have to be subject to the same uh, war on drugs laws and policing and stuff like that. Well, guess what? They just, they won't notice what's happening and they're not going to be... Uh, you're, you're taking the most like motivated, annoying parents mm -hmm. who you want in the system because they have a way of like making sure that the trains run on time. You're taking them out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's what, that's how Finland did it. I don't, I mean, should they do something like that in the States? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been told that um, we did it. We did a disservice if we're trying to be anti-racist by moving to a white community putting our kids in a top public high school and not going through the, you know, place where we were living at the time in Boston, you know, where we would have put our kids through that system because we are college educated parents, which was unusual. We're married. Um, we live together, you know, we're both professionals, you know, now we put our kids through the system and that would have not only helped our children to be better because my children don't, get the like the urban black experience at all they don't know it right they only know what it's like to be the one black kid in everybody's class but you know what i mean so that i mean it's up to us in a way to self-select activist parent in the urban school and i've met people like that who made that choice to go to the underfunded school because they're trying to fight the good fight yeah, well, it's, Boy, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's that's a, a difficult sacrifice. question, right? Because, like, I, on the one hand, I've, uh, you know, I, I've heard, I can't remember her name, but I remember this one prof I had in undergrad. She was very strident about the issue you're talking about. And she said that progressive parents who um, put their kids in private school are no better than conservatives who, like, flag wave and really support foreign wars but make sure that their kids don't get drafted it's like okay you're you're saying you support this kind of policy it's mm -hmm. going to have like really serious costs but you're making sure that your kids 
don't have to. And I, I don't know if you've listened to the, the wonderful uh, podcast series called uh, Nice White Parents. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that? It's, it's uh, on NPR, I think. But anyway, it's, it's very, very good. And a lot of it is set in New York and Boston, actually. But um, and they, yeah, they basically say the same thing. Like, that, um, you know, you can't uh, if you're going to say these things, you have to put yourself on the line. Now, the pro- the problem with that is that I think if you're a parent, your first allegiance should be to your kids, not to your to your politics. And I think you know, using your kids as as sort of pawns in your political chess game is probably yeah. not like a, a really good parenting move but it's horrible that we're forced into these mm-hmm. bad choices where it's like okay do I want to like my kid to have like the best education yeah. possible or do I want to be like a good progressive you know I mean I what a rough yeah. choice you know I mean like it, it is. It is. And, you know, we, we try to ameliorate it by traveling with the kids all around the world and showing them different communities. But I'll tell you that as a black kid, they didn't escape um, racism in a white school, in a good school, in a p- private school. We didn't escape it as parents. Um, you know, we certainly experienced um, all different aspects. You know, we, you know, the... Um, we, we live alongside another community in a place called Wyndham, Connecticut, which is um, a Latinx community, which is a lot, a lot of Puerto Ricans in that town, right? Yeah. And I've yeah. worked there. I worked there as a, as a long-term substitute teacher because I homeschooled for years. So that was another thing I did that a lot of progressive whites do is homeschool. Um, I homeschooled my kids because when my child, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, when he was asked to leave the school, um, I decided to do it myself. Um, so both my kids, I homeschooled for four years. And during that time, I, I substitute taught and I kept, I still worked in the classroom, you know, cause money is money. You still yeah. need to get paid. And um, those school districts right next to us are much more representative of the systemic oppression and racism. They're underfunded, lots of empty classrooms, teachers who don't show up, principals who quit in the middle of the year. You know, I mean, it was, it was a it was crazy how similar it was to Chicago where I went to high school or in Boston where where I taught. I'm like, boy, you can find those communities anywhere. So, you know, we we did our best. I did our best, did my best to share my experiences. Um, my kids come to my high school football games when I referee and they film, and I've seen we saw a race war erupt on a football field. And my child was in the was in the stands with his camera filming the filming the game. So um, these things happen. Um, even you know, if you just get out of your bubble a little bit, I think your kids will be all right. Um, yeah. if, if you don't just stick to your. But it, as you said, our first priority is to make sure our children don't end up with way less than what we ended up receiving. You know, all the opportunities that I got growing up. My wife growing up in a, in a well-to-do family, you know, getting getting the best education and translating that into home ownership here in the United. But what, what would be worse than raising our children in a position where they get wrapped up, caught up in law enforcement or they get caught up in something that happens in a, in a poor school district where they just don't pass the SAT. They don't get into the college because nobody's getting into the college. And then they can't participate in homeownership. They can't participate 
and they're totally disempowered. And I think that that would be a big failure on my part to produce children that don't even have the power to change the world in the in a positive way. So, yeah, we, know, I, we actually, I didn't send them to yeah. the private school, but I, you know, I, I did have to make a compromise with those values that you were talking about. Well, you, I mean, you do what you have to do for your parents. I mean, I remember Annalise and I had this conversation before we even had kids and we talked about, you know, to what extent do we want to sort of uh, kind of impose our political views and religious views and stuff like that on our, on our kids. And we, we kind of decided that, um, you know, we would definitely try and be, um, as as consistent as possible but that if we ever had to choose between like you had to like if we ever had to choose between like doing what's good for um our kids and doing what's good for you know the common good or something like that we would always choose um uh, we would always choose like our kids right that would be like our right and i think that's i think that's like the right thing to do all the time Anyway, I see we're we're almost uh, we're almost up in time, but I want to sort of as a kind of a closing question, you know, do you do you think things are getting better? Do you think they're getting worse? Do you think they're staying the same? Are you are you hopeful when you look at the future, or are you really sort of depressed? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Star Trek fan. I think in the 23rd century, we're going to, we're going to achieve um, a great human, you know, uh, civilized, civilized, you know, for everybody and, and, you know, opportunity for everybody. And, you know, it, I think, I think, I, I think it's, there's room for hope. Absolutely. I am hopeful. And I love the fact that we're having these conversations um, like the one we're having right this moment, but, you know, I'm seeing more and more people discussing and being fair and listening than I've ever seen before. And so I actually think it is getting better. I think Donald Trump as a president, I think in a weird way was good for the country. It was a kind of a wake up call, kind of the cold water in the face for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what the next four years is going to hold, but um, I do, I do like what kind of came out of the summer last year. I'm just hoping that, you know, I see too often that activists, they feel bad, they recognize problems, they go in and make a donation, they go <laughs> in and they do a march. I, I want to just see it continue. I'm looking for the momentum to carry on. And so that, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, 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 feel like, I feel like something definitely has changed. Like, it's as if like something's definitely changed. Like I noticed like my wife and I were talking about it. I think it was yesterday or the day before we were watching. It was a, a movie that we've, you know, seen, seen before. And uh, it's not important what it is, but like, it's amazing how like since George Floyd, like you just see things differently. Like, and they said stuff that like you didn't notice or stuff that was totally fine. And was like, you see it now and you're like, Ooh, that's, that's weird, right? Like, and I yeah. remember the same thing happened after after September 11th. Like, and you know, we we really mm -hmm. liked like everybody. We really liked the movie The Matrix, right? We really yeah. liked The Matrix. But I remember the first time we watched The Matrix after September 11th. Like, two mm -hmm. of our, you know, one of our, our good friends uh, was killed on September 11th. 
Another I'm woman sorry. my wife went to school with, uh, high school with, was killed in the World Trade Center. And, you know, we went to like a 9-11 funeral. Like we went to, we went to this guy's funeral six months to the day after we went to his uh, wedding in the same synagogue. It was horrible. But mm-hmm. um, I remember the first time we watched The Matrix after September 11th, it really was creepy. Like it, it was not a fun movie anymore because, you know, the way that when they're in the matrix, they just like, sh- like bystanders are just like, you just shoot them because they could turn into those like a, everything. And just the idea of like, you know, there's some people who see things clearly and because of that, they can kill whoever they want. They can do it. I mean, like it, it was not a fun movie anymore. Like it because of that. And I think since George Floyd, something has has changed and I can I can sense that mm-hmm. the, the Overton window has has moved and mm-hmm. things that things that were silly are now uh maybe that'd be a good idea. Maybe we should try that out. <laughs> like, like things like it's it is quite quite amazing. It's a very exciting time uh, to be alive. And uh, anyway, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I thank you for also for your all of your like very thoughtful um you know comments in in social media land and you're uh, it's it's nice when you meet somebody that is you know a very kind of spirited uh interlocutor but is always like really respectful and always like you know decent but is like really spirited it's it's wonderful when you encounter that because so often what you find in social media land is is people sort of slinging slogans and insults at each other which it doesn't really doesn't no. really achieve anything. <laughs> but Facebook rewards it. Yeah, it does. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. <laughs> and uh, at some point when we're down in um, next time we're down in your neck of the woods, we should uh, we should get a beer. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. Yeah, you too. Bye bye.